This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it, out. I it was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true stories of how science has affected people's lives. A quick reminder, we'll be at the Cambridge Science Festival in Boston, April 16th. Go to storycollider.org for more details. This week's story is from Stuart Firestein. The story was recorded in March 2013 at Union Hall in Brooklyn. The theme of the event was Brain Awareness. I, um, I wasn't always a neuroscientist. I mean, I guess nobody was always a neuroscientist <laughs> in some way. What I mean, of course, is that I had a career before this neuroscience thing. I worked in the theater for about 15 years or so before I, quote, became a scientist. Uh, I was a, mostly a director. And in those days, sorry to say things like in those days, but in those days, there were no real college training programs for the theater or anything. You just apprenticed yourself. You worked as an apprentice, and that's how you learned the craft. A technique that I still think is actually one of the best ways to learn anything. So I did that. I became an apprentice. I was a stagehand and then a lighting guy and assistant stage manager, a stage manager, eventually a director. And I tried to work with people who I thought were good and who I could learn something from. And so I had this career going in the theater. And at some point, I wound up in San Francisco and I was working in the theater there. And uh, I found that some moment I had some time on my hand, which is normally not an unusual thing when you work in the theater, but, but in this particular case it was because I'd done the lighting for a very successful show that was going to run a long time and I had some free time. So I thought I would go take a course at the local state university there in animal behavior, which had been a kind of an interest of mine for some odd reason or another, kind of a hobby. So I went to the state university, San Francisco State University, and I enrolled in this course in animal communication. It was taught by a fellow named Hal Markowitz, one of the first of the important mentors in my life who I'm sorry to say passed away just six months ago. Hal taught this course in animal communication. I found myself in this class and I thought, this is really amazing. I, I sit here, this guy stands up there, tells me everything he knows about something and I, I get to listen to him. This is very cool. <laughs> who thought of this? <laughs> um, as it turns out, I think it was Aristotle or Pla Plato. <laughs> Someone like that. But. So four years later, I had an undergraduate degree in biology, remarkably enough. And I can tell you now, as a university professor, how worthless an undergraduate degree in biology <laughs> is. At least as far as gaining employment is concerned. It does allow you to get on to the next thing if you want to get on to the next thing. So I'd done this while I continued to work in, in the theater, so it was no problem. But now I realized that I was kind of faced with a decision. Was I really going to try a career in science, or would I just go back to the theater with my undergraduate degree in biology and see how that worked out? Um, 
So I thought I would apply to graduate schools and see what happened. And I did. I applied to graduate schools, several graduate schools in neuroscience, and I was rejected by several and accepted by a few others. And remarkably, I got an acceptance from the University of California at Berkeley, something that I, to this day, am convinced was a clerical error, but <laughs> hey, you know, it's, it's okay. <laughs> they don't have to know. Um, so I accepted, of course, and, I, and at 35 years old, I, I began a career as a graduate student uh, in neuroscience. Now, in those days, it was a little bit more unusual than it is today to be a 35-year-old graduate student, but nonetheless, I was reasonably well accepted. I was Berkeley, after all, and so forth. <laughs> and I found that being a graduate student turns out to be almost the same thing as being an apprentice. I mean, you kind of attach yourself to a laboratory, you find a lab you want to work in, and you attach yourself to it, and you learn the craft by going to work every day and working in this laboratory. So I had developed at this time an interest in olfaction, the sense of smell, because I thought it was kind of closely connected. It was the most neuro, neural system that I could think of that was closely connected to behavior in animals. So I thought, I'll study the sense of olfaction. That'd be cool. Of course, it was also interesting because there weren't that many people doing work in olfaction. There wasn't that much known about it yet. It seemed like there were nice big questions and all that. And in fact, there was only one professor at Berkeley who studied olfaction, the somewhat notorious Walter Freeman. Uh, Walter Freeman was something of an outlier, both him and his science, I have to say. Uh, although, curiously, he's, um, he's coming back into vogue these days, some 35 years later. In any case, I decided I would, I would join Walter's lab. Walter was a bit crazy. He had this long white beard that was yellow about halfway down. <laughs> This was due to the, the incessant cigars that he smoked in his office while he studied the sense of smell, mind you. That could, could have tipped me off, but, but didn't. So uh, one day, a few months after starting and sort of starting in Walter's lab or thinking I would start in Walter's lab, I was walking out of a seminar and I ran into Frank Werblin, uh, the second great mentor in my life, who was at that time the chair of the neuroscience department. Frank said, well, have you decided on a lab to work in? Have you thought about a lab? And I said, well, I'm thinking about Walter Freeman because I'm really interested in olfaction. And I could see this sort of cloud pass over Frank's <laughs> face. You know, this is not good. So Frank said, um, well, listen, before you make a final decision, why don't you come talk to me? Uh, that was the first time that Frank saved my ass. So I went and talked to Frank, and, um, and he convinced me that, oh, so right around this time, I should say, there was a new technique that had, that had appeared in neuroscience, in neurobiology, called the patch clamp. It had been invented by these two German neuroscientists. There you go. <laughs> That's one. <laughs> Maybe I should take this story in a different direction. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> I'm going to plow right ahead here. <laughs> so the patch clamp was this technique invented by these two German neuroscientists, Nair and Sachmann. They eventually won a Nobel Prize for it some years later. And it was a way of recording electrical activity in single neurons that surpassed all the previous methods, made things much easier and more amenable to it, and so forth and so on. Anyway, and Frank, who was an engineer by background, was going to introduce this patch, patch clamp technique into his laboratory, which worked on the retina. So Frank said, well, why don't you come into my lab? We're trying this new patch clamp technique. It's very exciting, and you could try it on olfactory neurons. So I thought, cool, why not? I'll do that. It's a better idea than Walter Freeman and that cigar. So I started in Frank's lab. 
But of course, I didn't know anything about olfaction or the olfactory system, and so things went kind of slow. Actually, kind of not at all for quite some time. And eventually, Frank came to me and said, all right, you know, listen, it was a nice try and all that, but really, I think you're in a retina lab, and there's nobody here that can help you in olfaction. Why don't you think about working in the retina where the other people in the lab can help you out? So I thought, all right, why not? It's a sensory system. could be just as interesting. We'll give it a try. Now, now the retina is a, a beautiful tissue, I have to say, and it's, and it's multi-layered, and it can be split up sort of into the outer retina and the inner retina. And the outer retina is where you see things, you know, where light impinges on cells and you detect light, and the inner retina is the cells that send that message back to the brain. And in between the two is something called the bipolar cell not because it's alternately depressed and manic, but because, <laughs> but because anatomically it sits right in between the outer and the inner retinas, connected to both, and sort of is the passageway. And I thought, and not much was known about bipolar cells. So I thought, well, I'll take bipolar cells. I'll work on bipolar cells, the center of the retina. As these things turn out quite often, uh, they're not what you think they're going to be. So I started working on bipolar cells, and because of some quirky business about their membranes and all, they're very difficult to use in this patch clamp technique. It's very hard to get a cell and, you know, record from it and all the rest of that. And then when you do get one of these bipolar cells and record from it, it turns out they're really, really boring. <laughs> they're, they turn out to be nothing more than a kind of a wire between the outer retina and the inner retina. They don't do a thing. So, so I found myself with this really difficult, really boring preparation in a tissue that I didn't really give a shit about. <laughs> I thought, so maybe I am kind of too old for this. I, mean, I don't know. Well, right around that time, Frank came into the lab one day and announced that he would be gone for six weeks because he was going on some trekking expedition in the Himalayas. Yeah, I, I know. I, so I know that sounds strange, but actually for Frank, that was not at all unusual. I mean, we, we barely blinked. Frank was, at the time, in his mid-50s. He was quite trim and fit, somewhat muscular. He worked out a lot. And, um, and, and he had this very erect posture. I mean, he could put a colonel to shame with this, this military-like posture. He had a shock of white hair, uh, a square jaw, a deep olive complexion. <laughs> I remember once overheard... Two, two younger students talking about him and referring to him as, oh yeah, yeah, that guy like from Mars, right? That's the one. <laughs> and that was Frank. So, so it wasn't all that unusual he was going to go off to the Himalayas for six weeks and go trekking or whatever. But I thought, ah, six weeks, six weeks. I'm going to go back and I'm going to work on olfaction for six weeks and uh, see what happens, see if I can figure something out. So now in those days we were working on salamanders and we had this hot tub in the lab. I mean, it was Berkeley. But actually, the, the hot tub, <laughs> yeah, it's not going to be that cool, actually. It's not like naked neuroscientists in the hot tub. It's not that. The hot tub had a, a cooling thing and a refrigerant thing, and it didn't have water, and we used it for the salamanders. I mean, the salamanders swam around in this cold water hot tub, because that's kind of what they liked, apparently. So, and, and then when we were doing an experiment, somebody would grab a salamander and we'd anesthetize the critter and sacrifice it by cutting its head off. I don't really know how to say that nicely, so, so we cut its head off. And, uh, and then we'd take the eyes out of the head and work on the retina. But of course, with every head, there were not only two eyes, there, there was a nose. But these noses were just, you know, putting 
in the plastic bag with the, sorry, with the carcass and in the freezer. So I thought, well, I'm going to start using these noses for a while. Now, now w we had a small lab at the time. It was a biophysics lab. They tend to be small. There were two senior graduate students besides me as a graduate student and two postdocs in the lab. It's kind of an all-boys lab, I have to say. That's the way biophysics was in those days. I know occasionally a woman would drop into the lab thinking to do a rotation, but I think the smell of testosterone and gym socks made them all flee somehow or another. Just the nerdiness of it, I don't know. Anyway, it was all, it was all boys. And, and nerd boys being nerd boys, um, they all decided that we would all work on olfaction because that's kind of adolescently rebellious. And <laughs> That's what we did. So, so they did do they did do their work, but they all helped me to work on these olfactory neurons, these olfactory cells from these salamander noses. And remarkably, these cells are brilliantly interesting. Now, neurons work, as you must know, to some extent, by electrical activity, right? So they change their electrical characteristic, their their voltage, if you will, and the, and they do this. So the lights here in the room and all the stuff, the appliances and gadgets we use, the electricity is carried by electrons. But in your body, and in particular in your brain, they're carried by something called ions, like sodium or potassium or chloride or calcium, which have a positive or negative charge. And they flow back and forth in and out of the cell, change the electrical activity, and believe it or not, everything you know about the world is due to that, your brain getting these little electrical signals. I know that sounds crazy, so you don't have to believe that part of the story, but it's true. So. Um, so it turns out these olfactory neurons have all these brilliant different kinds of ionic currents, sodium currents, and a couple of kinds of potassium currents and calcium currents. It was like a gold mine of ionic currents, which I know I seem ridiculously excited about, but it really was exciting at the time. So I recorded all these currents and printed them out and everything, and Frank came back from schlepping or trekking or whatever it was he was doing around the Himalayas. And he came to the lab and, and went around to each of our setups, as it were, and said, well, you know, looked at what we've done over the past couple of weeks and had all this data laid out, all these currents and their analysis and things like that. And Frank looked at it and he, he knew I'd been struggling quite a bit. And he said, well, this is, this is wonderful. What, what, what happened here? This is great. I said, well, Frank, I, I have to tell you, these are not bipolar cells. <laughs> he said, well, that, that's okay. That's okay. This still this is great. I said, Frank, this is tough, but I have to tell you, these are not retinal cells. These, these, these are olfactory neurons. And Frank's face dropped for a moment, and he looked, and he looked for what seemed like an awful long time, but I think wasn't, and he looked, and he said, well, you're just going to have to work on olfaction, aren't you? And I realized then that I learned two critical lessons from Frank Orblin. I learned what a scientist is and what a mentor is. A scientist follows data, and a mentor stands behind students. So here's to Frank. Thank you. That was Stuart Firestein. Stuart is the chair of Columbia University's Department of Biological Sciences. His laboratory seeks to answer that fundamental human question, how do I smell? Firestein also serves as an advisor for the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation's Program for the Public Understanding of Science. His book on the workings of science for a general audience called Ignorance, How It Drives Science was released by Oxford University Press this spring. This event was produced in conjunction with Bee Brainy NYC as part of the Dana Foundation's Brain Awareness Week. For more science stories, take a look at storycollider.org, where we have archives of the podcast and upcoming events. 
We depend on you for our continued support. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider donating at storycollider.org donate. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Wecht, Aaron Barker, and Ari Daniel Shapiro. The podcast is produced by Rose Avalith. Additional help from Brooke Williams, Lena Groger, and Justin D'Ambrosio. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Union Hall for hosting the show and to my graduate work for not involving noses or eyeballs at all. Except mine, I guess. Thanks for listening. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.